So all of the mechanisms suggest that estrogen imbalance relative to progesterone is what is causing the hot flashes. The fact that you can stop a hot flash with estrogen is probably because estrogen activates cortisol and other stress hormones that block the metabolism of estrogen, and that has the potential to inhibit nitric oxide synthesis. Okay, so so... But nitric oxide will increase estrogen, though? Don't they kind of all work together? So it's just the overabundance can inhibit it? Can you kind of go over that one more time? It tends to be a vicious circle, uh, but uh, estrogen is one of the estrogen and stress and hypoglycemia uh, will all activate nitric oxide and progesterone inhibits it uh, partly by keeping a steady sugar metabolism maintaining body temperature. A lower body temperature creates a vicious circle, including the the production of more estrogen. Welcome to the Weight Loss for Women podcast, a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can eat more, train less, and lose weight in a healthy and sustainable way. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and Saturated, creator of pro-metabolic food supplements and seriously saturated skincare. And today I'm really excited to have Dr. Ray Pete and Kate Deering back on the podcast. So we've done uh, quite a few podcasts with both of them. So I highly recommend you go back and listen to those. But today we wanted to get Ray back on to talk more about estrogen replacement therapy And we also dive into some of the myths around milk and calcium. So if you're anything like I once was, you know, you probably thought milk and dairy products caused inflammation and cancer. And, you know, I thought they were too high in sugar. So I cut them all out of my diet. Um, And I was actually diagnosed with lactose intolerance at age 12. So my mum put me on bloody soy milk and all those disgusting cheeses, you know, non-dairy cheeses. But when I met Emma, I realized that I couldn't digest dairy because I had a stressed digestive system. So, you know, once I improved that and improved all my metabolic markers, I was able to tolerate dairy again. And, you know, calcium has so many uh, benefits and is needed by the body for so many different things, which we cover um in this podcast. So it is jam packed with information. So I highly recommend you grab a pen and paper and uh, take notes. And as always, um, please rate and review the podcast. So if you at the podcast episodes, if you've rated and reviewed us before, you can do it as many times as you like. Um, And each month, I actually pick a winner from those that share. So if you'd like to win a tub of saturated premium collagen, all you need to do is take a screenshot um, of the review um, or the podcast episode and share it on Instagram stories and tag me at K-I-T-T-Y-B-L-O-M-F-I-L-D. And like I said, each month, I just pick a winner, pick someone from those that have shared and they get a tub of uh, saturated premium collagen. So look, I hope you learn as much as I did um, in this episode. Let's get into it. Super, super excited to welcome uh, back to the podcast, Dr. Ray Pete and Kate Deering. Hi, guys. Welcome back. Hello, Miss Kitty. <laughs> How are you today? 
Oh, good. Yeah, all good yep. here. Yep. Sure, sure too. <laughs> okay, great. So um, this is, I think, probably maybe the fifth time we've had uh, Dr. Pete on the podcast. We've had Kate Deering on the podcast probably 10 plus times. Um, and the last podcast we had, um, there was quite a lot of questions around um, estrogen replacement therapy. So we thought we'd start this podcast uh, Kate just wanted to ask Dr. Pete some questions around that. And then we wanted to dive into um, myths around calcium and milk. So Kate, I'll hand over to you. Okay. Um, so yeah, a lot of what we talked about last time was certainly estrogen and the industry of estrogen, um, which went down a lot of trails of the estrogen replacement therapy. Cause obviously when women enter menopause, it seems to be a somewhere that they're driven to because it, it, it can make them feel better. And so um, during the course of this, I was actually referred to a book, if people want to look it up, called Estrogen Matters by Dr. Avram Blumming and Carol T- uh, Tavaris. Um, and so I thought we would talk about some of the things that he says in there because he's certainly a pro-estrogen therapy doctor. Um, so in, in this book, um, he definitely talks about that estrogen therapy has some uh, good reasons to take it, especially for women. Um, there's good and bad, but one of, one of his things, he says that estrogen therapy, um, can help with heart disease. And so I thought Dr. Peep could maybe elaborate on some of these claims that the estrogen industry is saying about what it's doing to help benefit women. I I have been writing newsletters on that topic in particular, uh, many years ago, uh, showing, uh, the contrary research that uh, women do have a, a better uh, outcome for heart health at the end of their lives. But progesterone is the heart protective factor. Uh, for decades, I've been saying uh, that the research shows that estrogen increases clotting, many kinds of inflammation, uh, and other. Uh, uh, factors relating to uh, plaque formation, uh, uh, arterial spasms, and so on. Uh, Progesterone uh, has many uh, life-extending properties, especially against heart disease, but against all of the degenerative tissue processes. Uh, Demonstrated uh, first uh, rabbit studies showed very clearly that uh, the higher their progesterone exposure uh, relative to estrogen, the longer they lived and the younger all of their tissues were at a given age. Uh, And then that was supported by population studies in humans over the course of their life. Uh, For example, having more babies leaves their body uh, more able to uh, produce progesterone uh, and uh, regulate downward estrogen. Uh, so the the facts are historically uh, very clear against estrogen's protective effects. Though uh, you have to start out uh, with the fact that beginning in 1942, uh, after several years of research showing that estrogen caused infertility, was an abortifacient, and uh, had many dangerous properties, including blood clotting, 
this was established uh, starting in the mid 1930s and uh, the uh, carcinogenic effects were clearly shown in animal studies all through that period, uh, culminating in a 1950 book uh, by Alexander Lipschutz, for example, uh, showing that estrogen was carcinogenic to every tissue in the body, not just uh, breast, uterus, brain, uh, and so on, but lungs, kidneys, all the other organs, if it isn't interrupted regularly by progesterone. Uh, one of the main functions of progesterone uh, is to uh, knock out estrogen, protects against stresses such as estrogen. Uh, so uh, in 1942, the drug industry uh, managed to convince the uh, FDA uh, that uh, it was uh, it was all right to use estrogen to treat menopause, including infertility symptoms, exactly opposite of what the facts were showing for several years. Uh, they, using their financial power, uh, they convinced the FDA uh, to uh, uh, approve it for all of these illogical uses, and they used that uh, market power to finance research to um, uh, practically force the deans of medical schools to oversee the research done in their schools to make sure their uh, medical school would keep getting generous financing for research purposes. And the same thing with journals. Uh, they let it be known that they were buying advertising that would enrich the journals. And if there weren't advertisements in the journals, uh, the journals would uh, sell them reprints of their articles, sometimes for uh, huge amounts of money, which were essentially bribes to the journals to publish things regardless of their truth. <clears throat> and uh, uh, that, that same power went directly to influencing doctors, uh, giving them kickbacks for prescribing estrogen, uh, and, and finally to direct advertising to the public. Uh, so starting right in 1942, uh, the estrogen industry profoundly corrupted science changed the whole nature uh, of how the public uh, thinks about it. And uh, as people grew up in a culture in which estrogen uh, was said to cure hundreds of different conditions, contrary to the facts, uh, the people growing up in that generalized culture uh, of estrogen worship, when they got to medical school, uh, that was still the, their framework. Uh, and so uh, they, they, when they found that uh, doing research that would support the estrogen industry, uh, that that was all that was going to be financed, uh, the background belief that was absorbed from the culture, uh, uh, just the so-called common knowledge, uh, that 
was reinforced by the knowledge that their career could thrive if they came up with results that favored the estrogen industry. And the result was that hundreds of diseases promoted by estrogen were, according to articles in medical journals, claimed to cure or prevent exactly that same disease that caused. Uh, and for example, uh, the, the, it was widely known that estrogen caused abortions, but they found uh, professors at Harvard uh, who would uh, say that it's a female hormone and uh, people who are infertile must be less female. And so if you give them estrogen, it'll make them more feminine and therefore more fertile. So they, uh, using uh, diethyl stilbestrol, uh, they pre prescribed estrogen uh, ultimately to millions of women, uh, damaging their babies and their own health, uh, causing generations of uh, uterine cancer, uh, various deformities, and so on. Uh, so uh, the most outrageous uh, falsehood about what estrogen does uh, took years and years to be reversed. Uh, and in the first uh, studies of estrogen in humans, they saw no benefit at all to the bones and skeleton. If, if anything, uh, the estrogen was causing soft tissues to bind calcium, not the bones. And so they did animal studies. The first research animal they used uh, was the beagle dog. Yeah. And it happened that estrogen uh, very distinctly damaged and weakened their bones. And uh, apparently people understanding that nocturnal rodents react uh, almost oppositely uh, to steroid hormones uh, to human beings. They settled on uh, rats as their uh, proof that estrogen would prevent or cure osteoporosis. Uh, again, the, the history of it is uh, based on obvious fraud. Uh, and the same uh, with uh, heart disease, for example. Uh, they were so convinced, uh, convinced the regulators that estrogen was why women didn't have so much heart disease that they started giving estrogen to men. And it didn't take long before the men were having more heart problems, uh, heart attacks in particular. Yeah, I think that is an assumption with, let's just kind of, kind of go over a little bit about heart disease in women. And, and I think it's believed that since women have estrogen, because they do have less heart disease premenopausal. And you're, and I've always heard it, it's usually because women have a cycle and they have a way of dumping out iron. And would you say that might be the reason why women have less heart disease? It's just because they can get rid of things, toxic metals like iron? Uh, definitely. Uh, when, when they stop menstruating, their iron level goes up sharply. Uh, but yeah. uh, pro progesterone does many other things besides allow menstruation. Uh, the, the first 
missed menstruation, the beginning of menopause, mm-hmm. uh, when you measure the hormones, estrogen hasn't changed at all and won't for a few months. But estrogen is what fails when menstruation stops. Uh, again, another evidence that progesterone is a protective factor. And in the absence of uh, progesterone beginning with menopause, uh, you, you have unopposed estrogen for the first few months. Uh, around the age of 38 is generally the peak of estrogen production. And then shortly after that, uh, you get progressive failure of progesterone production. So the unopposed estrogen is astronomically high in that period from age 38 up until menopause, whenever that is. Right. And when you would say unopposed, because it seems that a lot of women during that age will get their hormones checked and they'll come back and say, well, my estradiol is low. So they're being told to get on estrogen therapy even before menopause. Uh, estradiol is an uh, oil-loving substance, uh, and the, the um, uh, way that it's eliminated is to add either sulfuric acid or glucuronic acid uh, to the estrogen molecule. That makes it water-soluble, and so it's circulating in the blood when, when it's being eliminated from the body. Progesterone, in at least half a dozen ways, activates and inactivates the enzymes regulating the attachment of the acid or the removal of the acid. So in the absence of progesterone, the soluble form of estrogen circulating in the blood is decreased. That means the oil-soluble form stays within cells. And within cells, it activates various things, including aromatase. So in the absence of progesterone, you're increasing aromatase and you're blocking the enzymes that excrete it. So as it falls, the level falls in the blood, the actual intercellular form is increasing. Okay, so kind of to summarize that, um, when you release progesterone, certainly during your cycle, that's also going to increase the uh, the estrogen in the blood because it's there to be excreted. So no progesterone, there's always going to be less estrogen in the blood because it's the progesterone is needed to activate the estrogen to release. Is that correct? Right, right. Okay. Um, and something I've also heard too about women that have been on estrogen therapy, and I think this is another theory, is, is when they're on and they get off estrogen therapy, they're they told, well, your cholesterol levels have elevated. And so they're like, well, and then they're being told, well, because estrogen is protective for your heart. Can, does, can estrogen have an effect on the liver that would affect cholesterol numbers? Because obviously just because your cholesterol is up or down doesn't mean technically that you have any more chances of heart disease. Uh, yeah, the reason women have about 10 times higher incidence of thyroid deficiency 
and rheumatoid uh, autoimmune diseases uh, is because uh, estrogen knocks out uh, the detoxifying process in the liver that removes estrogen. So the more estrogen circulating uh, and produced, uh, the more your liver suffers, your thyroid is suppressed uh, and the liver slows down all of its metabolism, especially uh, the glucuronidase uh, and uh, uh, the sulfotransferase uh, enzymes that would detoxify uh, estrogen. So uh, uh, the defensive processes produce more progesterone, but if your thyroid is less active because of the estrogen blockage, then you're needing something to increase the protective progesterone. And it happens that if you can increase cholesterol in circulation, it directly supports the production of steroids in the brain as well as in the ovaries and adrenals. So rising cholesterol compensates for excess estrogen and the resulting hypothyroidism. If you isolate an ovary, measure how much progesterone is coming out of the ovary, and then you increase the cholesterol circulating in the blood, you directly increase the production of progesterone. So, so uh, okay, there's a way to misinterpret everything. Well, that, that's what I'm always <laughs> finding. So you're saying that if you get on estrogen, because what, like, like I said, people say when they get off estrogen therapy, my cholesterol levels elevated. And you're saying that is happening because maybe of the damage to the liver, or am I getting that the opposite? Uh, uh, well, the liver and intestine are, are major sources, but every, every cell can make uh, cholesterol. Uh, so when you're under stress of any sort, uh, you'll increase your uh, cholesterol production, potentially increasing progesterone. So would it make sense that taking estrogen therapy would elevate cholesterol or lower cholesterol? Uh, they saw that for years with birth control pills. Uh, that was uh, the, the only acknowledged uh, effect of estrogen. That it was lower in cholesterol levels? I, I know that it would increase them. Oh, that it would increase them. Okay. So birth control would, so you're saying that estrogen will elevate cholesterol levels. Uh, uh, yeah, that's one of its potential effects. Okay. So I'm, so I actually knew someone that said she got off of her estrogen therapy and then her cholesterol elevated and her explanation from her doctor was, well, estrogen is protective to your heart. Meaning, you know, they were saying, so it has this effect and that's why her cholesterol elevated post getting off the estrogen therapy. So I don't know if there was another mechanism going on there, but that was something that I have heard antidotally. Is there any explanation for that? Hello? Uh, oh, uh, was, was that a question? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a question, would there, would there ever be a reason where estrogen therapy would have a cholesterol lowering effect? Uh, I'm sure there are situations where that can happen. Okay. Okay. But, uh, so uh, not if normally. You, if you poison the liver adequately, it can't make cholesterol. Okay. That would uh, make sense. PUFA, for example, a very, very high level of PUFA will lower your ability to make cholesterol. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the same person had a lot of stress going on at this period of time, too. So that could have just been another variable that created the elevation in cholesterol. Um, so can we just say a little bit about, obviously, there's lots of talk that um, being on estrogen therapy can be protective against Alzheimer's. It can be helpful for the brain, which I always have assumed that would be the opposite. Can you explain maybe why they're getting some of these results that people on estrogen therapy have less chances of Alzheimer's? Uh, oh, all, all through the 1990s, the data came out clearly showing that women have two or three times the incidence of Alzheimer's disease. and Naturally, the doctor said, oh, that's because they're deficient in, in the estrogen. <laughs> but uh, after the Women's Health Initiative showed that in this huge number of people in the research, uh, that their dementia and Alzheimer's disease were clearly elevated when they took estrogen. Uh, so that very strongly suggests that uh, a woman's history of estrogen exposure is why women have uh, about three times as much risk of Alzheimer's disease. And doesn't estrogen have an effect like immediately on the brain? Because some people will say, I take my estrogen there, my estrogen, and I can feel like that my brain is working better. So doesn't it have uh, it, a slight excitatory uh, effect on the brain? It is excitatory. Uh, Katharina Dalton uh, in the 1940s and 50s uh, was doing good studies on uh, treating her patients uh, for premature births, uh, toxemia, uh, and especially premenstrual syndrome by giving them uh, progesterone. Uh, she one of the main things she saw was that in the progesterone deficiency, uh, they tended, anytime they were experiencing a progesterone deficiency, uh, their ability to pass a test in school uh, was severely impaired. Uh, and uh, uh, there have been uh, studies of uh, why women uh, speak faster, uh, use more words per minute than men, uh, and estrogen will accelerate uh, uh, the, the uh, verbalization of women. Uh, the, the number of words per minute simply is faster in general in women. Uh, that's the excitatory effect. Uh, but uh, when you compare the information transmitted by fast talkers and slow talkers, uh, the information uh, per word is much higher in the slow talkers. Uh, they uh, 
uh, allow uh, uh, the, the context uh, and uh, uh, more complex significance to accumulate as they formulate their sentences. But if you talk very fast, you're talking mostly in cliches, uh, not uh, letting uh, the information uh, uh, come, come through in an enriched form. So essentially what you're saying is estrogen on the brain is like cocaine on the brain. <laughs> have a very, very, very similar. Uh, and in animal studies in the 1950s and 60s, uh, for example, they would train an animal so that uh, every trial over a period of uh, an hour maybe uh, would get better and better uh, uh, and finally reach 100% performance. If they would uh, give a, a little extra estrogen to the animal, it erased their learning. Uh, there was no gain uh, from uh, experience because the estrogen was simply erasing memory. Mm. Okay, so that's good to know that it's not sugar that we should equate to cocaine. It is estrogen more likely that creating that excitatory manner. So um, another uh, interesting part. Uh, yeah, cocaine increases all of the stress processes, uh, right. blocking good nerve function, uh, where uh, uh, gl glucose is one of the protective things against stress uh, uh, necessary for good, relaxed brain functioning. Let's see, there we have it. Um, one thing that I noticed in this book as I went through all the references and the resources and the things that they said that is that a lot of the studies were anywhere from four to 10 years when they talk about maybe some of these benefits or that they found that estrogen, taking estrogen therapy didn't increase some, uh, some sorts of cancer. And I know you've always said that it can take a lot longer. I mean, what, if someone taking estrogen therapy for decades, you know, could it take a lot of time for them really to see the negative effects of their, ther their estrogen therapy? Yeah, it's pretty similar to the effects of radiation. Uh, if you look at a woman's peak estrogen production around age 38, 20 years later, a little more than about 20 years, uh, you see the uh, uh, age-specific rate of uh, breast cancer <clears throat> Uh, takes a sudden increase in the late 50s, uh, 20 years later. And if you look at the effect of an early puberty, uh, and in the U.S., uh, puberty is starting as early as age seven, uh, the younger age of puberty, puberty uh, is uh, decreasing uh, the youngest uh, age-specific breast cancer rate with now, now women in their 20s and 30s have had a, a recent a sharp rise in breast cancer risk and occurrence. And if you look 50 years later, 50 years, for example, after that peak at the age of 38, the absolute highest uh, age-specific cancer mortality uh, is around age 85 to 89. 
So it takes, uh, in uh, that case, uh, from 20 to 50 years uh, for the estrogen to have full effect. Uh, same, pretty much the same with radiation. Wow, interesting. So I, I think I think it's just good when even looking at some of the research when we look at estrogen therapy. I I, I feel like after the Women's Health Initiative, because um, they did show at that point in time that that HRT was cr- creating a uh, a somewhat increase in breast cancer in women. Obviously, that's why they stopped it. But since then, it seems that they've been fighting that, <laughs> and a lot uh, yeah, of research is. He- yeah. Even the professors at Stanford who were involved in designing the WHI study, which cost hundreds of millions of dollars of the public money, when the results came out, even though they had participated in designing the study, it didn't suit their expectations. And so they rejected it, said there must be something wrong. <laughs> even though they approved of the study in advance. Uh, and uh, the, the Sanford people were just the most outrageous cases, but uh, the, the whole medical profession uh, was uh, under the financing of the estrogen industry. They were churning out, especially in the 80s and 90s, uh, when uh, the actual science was uh, putting the uh, industry at risk uh, by by, uh, showing what estrogen is actually doing. The industry got busy and placed phony articles in the the most influential journals uh, through the 80s and 90s. Uh, And so uh, everywhere you looked, there was an article uh, saying that uh, estrogen therapy uh, prevented uh, uh, osteoporosis, uh, dementia, uh, 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 heart, heart disease, uh, extended another one, uh, yeah, yeah, and extended longevity. Uh, but, yes, uh, uh, a 2004 uh, paper published in Archives of Internal Medicine showed that they said estrogen therapy improves the quality of life. Uh, women didn't like to have hot flashes, but unfortunately, it shortened their longevity. Uh, uh, so uh, there were studies looking at the actual facts uh, that, uh, that didn't suit the established view of the medical profession. So the professors uh, and doctors uh, and journal editors all hated the outcome of the uh, uh, women's health initiative, but uh, there were uh, it was uh, hundreds uh, uh, of times a bigger database for that study. Uh, they, they preferred the uh, the publications with uh, uh, maybe a hundred uh, case cases or, or uh, two hundred uh, cases and so on. Right. Well, I... And just okay. before the World Women's Health Initiative, uh, for uh, since 1975, the National Cancer Institute had been keeping data on almost half of the total uh, United States population, called the SEER uh, study, uh, the, uh, 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 the surveillance 
uh, uh, epidemiology and the end result is what it stood for. But, uh, for example, their data uh, covered 350,000 cases of breast cancer. Uh, and then uh, you, you have the one like the recent uh, Japanese study of 164 cases. Uh, and people like uh, Blooming and Tavares uh, go with the results uh, uh, based on 164 cases uh, in Japan rather than uh, 350,000 cases in the US, which are strongly supported uh, even more so uh, than uh, the Women's Health Initiative. Uh, the design of the uh, WHI uh, helped to make it look like there was less risk than the actual National Cancer Institute data. Ah, so that's an interesting place to look. I haven't even heard uh, of that at the Sears study. So I'll have uh, to... Probably the biggest, uh, most obvious uh, uh, disproof of people like uh, uh, the, oh, the, uh, uh, the, this book you mentioned uh, uh, is that the, uh, in 2002, when the data from the study uh, were published, uh, the, there was a tremendous drop-off in use, filling prescriptions for estrogen, and even uh, fewer doctors writing prescriptions. Uh, and uh, the uh, sales uh, by Wyeth of Premarin dropped so sharply in just one year, uh, it was almost a billion dollars of sales loss. And that continued over several years. And when they were using much less estrogen, uh, there was a historically huge decrease in mortality from breast cancer starting almost immediately. Uh, and uh, the, the immediate results are going to be amplified 20, 30, 40 years later. But in the first few years, it was already evident uh, about a 10% decrease in uh, breast cancer. Uh, and that amounts to thousands of women uh, not dying from breast cancer because they stopped taking their hormone uh, replacement. Yeah, I think that's a, a definitely uh, some data showing that it, it definitely had an effect. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of go back on real quick, because obviously a lot of women take hormone replacement because they have horrible hot flashes and it obviously works. They can take it and their hot flashes. Um, can you explain maybe the mechanism of why estrogen helps to get rid of hot flashes? Uh, um, the the um, blood sugar... Uh, and nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is what uh, lowers your body temperature during a hot flash by letting the heat come to the surface. Uh, and nitric oxide uh, is, uh, it happens that estrogen uh, is a great activator of nitric oxide, but uh, a falling blood glucose or ability to use the glucose uh, it will increase your nitric oxide uh, and cause a hot flash. So things that uh, interfere with glucose use uh, are, are going to 
uh, increase your hot flashes. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, you, you can clearly stop night sweats and hot flashes by just taking something uh, like a, a concentrated slurry of cornstarch, some way of uh, keeping your blood sugar up steadily will stop the hot flashes. Uh, progesterone is the normal way to turn off nitric oxide, uh, keep your body temperature higher, uh, while estrogen causes you to lower your temperature. Uh, the, the natural tendency of estrogen to increase uh, nitrogen oxide uh, leads to the vasodilation and reducing body temperature. So people using estrogen have a lower body temperature. Uh, people using progesterone have a higher body temperature. Uh, when your progesterone fails, uh, the uh, vasodilation uh, uh, lets the blood circulate to the surface so you feel flesh, sweaty, and hot uh, as your temperature falls. So uh, uh, all of the mechanisms uh, uh, suggest that uh, estrogen uh, uh, imbalance relative to progesterone is what is causing the hot flashes. Uh, the, the, uh, the fact that you can stop a, a hot flash uh, with, with estrogen is probably because uh, estrogen activates cortisol and other stress hormones that uh, block uh, the, the metabolism uh, of estrogen, uh, uh, and that has the potential to uh, inhibit nitric oxide synthesis. Okay, so, so, but nitric oxide will increase estrogen though? Don't they kind of all work together? So it's just the overabundance can inhibit it? Can you kind of go over that one more time? It tends to be a vicious circle, uh, but uh, estrogen is one of the, estrogen and stress and hypoglycemia uh, will all uh, activate nitric oxide. Uh, and progesterone inhibits it uh, partly by uh, keeping a, a steady sugar metabolism, maintaining body temperature. Uh, but a lower body temperature uh, creates a vicious circle, uh, uh, including the, the production of more estrogen. Right. But that you would think that that would actually increase the hot flash, not decrease it. Uh, uh, yeah. The, the, the known mechanisms of vasodilation uh, are, are strongly in that direction. But uh, you can override those things uh, by surges of, of stress hormones. Uh, uh, adrenaline uh, shrinks your uh, blood vessels. Uh, serotonin uh, shrinks the blood vessels, uh, as well as reducing heat production. So the stress hormones activated by a uh, an overdose, gigantic overdose of, of estrogen, uh, turning on adrenaline, cortisol, uh, and serotonin. Uh, that can block uh, the nitric oxide effects on the blood vessels. Okay. So essentially, I think that anybody is on estrogen therapy. I think it's probably important to 
check your body temperature and pulse and, you know, and see how your body is actually regulating to see if you're actually getting a proper response from the hormones you're, you're taking. Uh, 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 yeah. And, and looking at the research of the role of carbohydrate, uh, just taking a, a big bowl of oatmeal before bedtime, for example, uh, will help to keep your blood sugar up longer and yeah. prevent, prevent night sweats and hot flashes. Yeah. I, and I know you've always said, and I, and I have uh, seen it work with women that some of the best mechanisms for really helping with hot flashes without estrogen are a regulating your blood sugar, utilizing a high carbohydrate, uh, drink or food and that can help. And also using progesterone is always both really, really effective for, for, um, helping with hot flashes. Is there anything else that you can think of that would help uh, with hot uh, flashes? Uh, uh, yeah. Watching your thyroid function closely, uh, without that, your estrogen progesterone balance uh, goes wrong. Right. So then that would be also then supporting your detoxification methods, because obviously as women get older, there's going to be an imbalance of the estrogen progesterone and then just detoxifying that es excess estrogen. So uh, uh, um, yeah, and supporting the thyroid function, uh, there are things like getting enough calcium and vitamin D in your diet to keep your metabolic rate up uh, in the same direction as the thyroid function which is just the perfect part of just to kind of streamline into our next topic, which we are going to talk about dairy and milk and calcium and how it's all very important to us. Um, because obviously <clears throat> dairy is important to our, our bone health and it obviously plays a role in us preventing from osteoporosis. Can you kind of talk about because obviously that people go back and forth with milk and dairy and, and you hear these studies where, Hey, if they have more dairy, they actually have uh, increases chance of osteoporosis. Can you maybe explain why that could happen and the importance of milk in bone health? If you select your data very well, <laughs> look at certain countries, you can find populations that, uh, have that particular correlation, but uh, not if you look at the everything else they're doing. Uh, 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 the the anti-milk cult has many dimensions. Uh, uh, some of it is it's just uh, uh, outright neurotic uh, fear. For example, uh, that they think there's something uh, unnatural about breastfeeding in itself. Uh, and that uh, to drink cow's milk uh, is, uh, uh, they, they claim that it's against God's plan and all sorts of things. But uh, I think there's something Freudian and psychiatric behind much of the anti-milk cult. Uh, but when you look at animal experiments, uh, uh, milk and sugar happen to be very clearly protective of bone strength as well as uh, bone mineralization. Uh, and bone strength is the important thing. Right. So <clears throat> is there a preference? Because obviously dairy is important. Um, can someone just take calcium supplements and get the same effects? Uh, uh, for some reason, for various reasons, 
the medical prescriptions have usually favored uh, uh, calcium citrate, uh, sometimes gluconate, but the gluconate uh, tablet is uh, uh, some, somewhat less e effective. Uh, the citrate doesn't work simply. Uh, the, the extra citric acid uh, in itself uh, disturbs your physiology. Uh, they think of it as neutral because uh, orange juice, for example, has lots of it. And they think of uh, orange juice as necessarily being beneficial. But uh, taking in uh, uh, citric acid from the outside is very different from the citric acid produced in our own metabolism. And it tends to getting into the wrong compartments. It can even change our resistance to cancer. So the closest to physiological would be calcium carbonate. But even that fails to be absorbed as well because in milk, uh, you have the, uh, uh, especially lactose, uh, but uh, any sugar, uh, uh, glucose from ordinary sugar uh, works almost as well as uh, uh, lactose for stimulating calcium absorption. Uh, so if you're going to try to get it from uh, calcium carbonate, for example, you should make sure you're taking it with adequate carbohydrate. So essentially, if somebody isn't able to have milk or dairy for one reason, one thing they can do is take calcium carbonate, which is also eggshell calcium that you can make on your own. And having it with something like orange juice would help facilitate a better absorption. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, except even in orange juice, the citric acid isn't a beneficial thing. Uh, the, the best orange juice has almost no, no citric acid. It's a, a side I'm of saying, stress. Yeah, consuming calcium carbonate with the orange juice, with the sugar, would help facilitate increasing. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the sugar. Carbonate. The sugar is the really important thing. Okay, so that would be a, a decent option for someone. What about because <clears throat> there's a lot of talk about what happens to the body under stress, and that there, that you know when we're under stress, we take in too much calcium and we take in too much calcium, that calcium goes and state goes to our tissue. Is that what's happening? Can we take in too much calcium or where is the calcium coming that is basically in someone's tissue? Uh, the, the parathyroid hormone, uh, which takes calcium out of your bones, does it by uh, increasing fermentation, uh, by producing lactic acid, uh, in the bone, uh, and uh, in the presence of carbon dioxide uh, and carbonic acid, calcium goes into your bone, but parathyroid hormone reverses that process, uh, decreasing CO2 and increasing lactic acid, getting the calcium out of your bone, putting it in your blood stream, uh, and uh, also uh, shifting the uh, a balance generally of uh, lactic acid uh, causing the calcium to accumulate in soft tissues at, at the same time that it comes out of 
bones where it belongs. Uh, uh, and uh, the if you don't eat enough calcium and have adequate vitamin D, your parathyroid hormone rises. Uh, and uh, so you have less calcium in your bones, more in your soft tissues. So people who don't consume enough calcium will get calcified arteries and calcified nerves and other tissues. So you have to think about what happens when you get adequate calcium and vitamin D, that you inhibit the parathyroid hormone and also inhibit the conversion of 25-hydroxyvitamin D into 1,25-hydroxyvitamin D, which is called the active vitamin D, but actually it's a stress-related factor that goes with all of the toxic effects of excess calcium. Okay, so I'm going to go back a little bit here because I, I think we need to chat a little bit about a few of these things. Um, I think the first thing you said is if you consumed vitamin D or you had adequate vitamin D but did not consume enough calcium, your parathyroid hormone would elevate pulling the calcium from the bones and that would pull it into the tissue. Is that correct? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, the... So the I, presence of D without calcium. I, I'm only saying that because obviously there, there's people out there taking lots of vitamin D right now and maybe not consuming enough calcium. And so with that person, they could be creating hypercalcemia or calcium in the tissue. Is that correct? Uh, uh, yeah, the, the combination of vitamin D in the diet or from sunlight uh, plus yeah. adequate calcium uh, and magnesium is necessary to keep a parathyroid hormone down and the active 125 hydroxy vitamin D down. Okay. So I just want people to understand that because <clears throat> there's a lot of D controversy and I don't know <laughs> if I want to really talk about in depth in depth in this conversation, but taking D without calcium and some of the other mechanisms like magnesium can create a atmosphere that isn't um, very good for you, which it could create calcium getting into the tissue, which, which, which is what you do not want. Correct. Uh, yeah. And taking 400 units of vitamin E of vitamin D daily, which a lot of doctors claim is adequate uh, is essentially nothing. Uh, and uh, so uh, you see publications saying that uh, vitamin D is absolutely ineffective at preventing heart disease and hardening of the arteries and so on. But that's because they uh, prescribed only 400 milligram or units per day uh, or uh, to, to effectively raise the uh, circulating vitamin D uh, to the point that it corrects things takes usually around four or 5,000 uh, uh, units of uh, vitamin D. Yeah. So is there any evidence, um, because obviously as people age, they get calcifications of the tissue and, and the calcium is going in the wrong places. And 
Um, Would that just happen from people ingesting too much calcium or is it just, is it more likely coming from a stressed system, which isn't balanced, probably isn't getting enough calcium or isn't able to absorb it. And now the body is elevating the parathyroid hormone and now it's pulling it from the bones. Yeah. Anything that cuts your energy metabolism or that overstimulates cells, uh, uh, they amount to the same thing. When you overstimulate a cell, it doesn't have adequate energy. Uh, and uh, uh, the excitotoxic amino acids, for example, uh, will overstimulate a cell, uh, cause it to take up calcium improperly, uh, which can lead to calcification and cancerization. Uh, and uh, blocking adequate energy production also uh, causes cells to take up uh, calcium, uh, keeping them in the excited, de-energized state. Gotcha. And something you said a little bit ago, you were referencing um, the importance of carbon dioxide in calcium metabolism. Can you uh, kind of say, talk about that again, about why it's so important to have enough carbon dioxide? Because obviously we know that carbon dioxide is produced highly in a glucose metabolism over any other type of macronutrient metabolism. So how it is really important to be metabolizing sugars, because obviously that produces the most carbon dioxide. And why is that important in, in calcium metabolism? Uh, uh, most people have now at least heard of the so-called Randall cycle uh, in which uh, uh, oxidizing fat blocks the oxidation of glucose uh, and vice versa. The uh, oxidizing glucose uh, helps you not to uh, oxidize fat, but to dispose of it in safer ways. Uh, And CO2, once it's produced uh, uh, and uh, keeping your fat oxidation uh, uh, low, uh, the CO2 directly Uh, turns off lactic acid production uh, and uh, has a directly quieting effect on cells. Uh, And as it's produced continuously in an active cell, uh, it and and, uh, its uh, uh, carbonic anhydrase uh, activated uh, carbonic acid, as that streams continuously out of the cell, it takes calcium uh, with it. So metabolizing glucose uh, uh, facilitates the anti-excitatory pro-energy function uh, uh, of uh, uh, the glucose oxidation uh, by uh, this anti-excitatory effect of the carbon dioxide. So, what I'm hearing is it is the increased amount of lactic acid that could be greatly increasing the chance of the calcium going into the tissue. Is that correct? Uh, Because I I definitely see that in diabetics they start losing a lot of um, bone density. And uh, explain why they they can't oxidize their glucose, uh, but what they can do is turn it into lactic acid. Uh, And even if it doesn't reach the point of, uh, uh, deadly uh, lactic acidosis. It, it's always there 
tending to raise their free fatty acids and the raised blood level of fatty acids is constantly interfering with the ability to oxidize glucose. So the, the essence of uh, uh, diabetes uh, is in the uh, uh, actions of lactate and free fatty acids. Uh, they, they create a vicious circle. Got it. Interesting. Okay. So I think that's an important factor to discuss because obviously calcium metabolism needs carbon dioxide and in a, in a body that is using fat as fuel, carbon dioxide is going to greatly decrease. So for some of those people, they're not going to be metabolizing calcium properly because of that state. Is that correct? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The circulating lactate should be at the very minimum Gotcha. Okay. Um, so I want to just kind of skip down to going back to milk because again, <laughs> milk is getting off on the calcium tangent, but I do want to talk about um, some of the myths about milk and maybe we'll go over these. And, and one of those is um, the lactose intolerant. Everyone thinks that there's obviously two thirds of the population of this world can't tolerate milk because they're lactose intolerant. Is there a reason for that? Why, why can't they tolerate milk? Is it genetic or is it maybe because once it's just their culture and they, they stopped being fed milk at a young age and now they can't tolerate it? Uh, there have been studies on the Chinese who are, are among the so-called genetically lactase, uh, uh, lactose intolerant people. Uh, and uh, in experiments, they simply had them add, uh, starting with uh, half a glass of milk uh, with a meal, uh, which uh, didn't cause any uh, disturbance. But if they keep that up uh, for uh, a few weeks, uh, the presence of the lactose gradually re-induces or restores the production uh, of uh, uh, the lactase enzyme, uh, which uh, every baby ha has uh, and which is turned off uh, when they stop drinking milk. Uh, and so if you don't stop drinking milk, uh, you don't become lactose intolerant. But uh, like the Chinese, if you uh, chronically re-expose them uh, to lactose, uh, they can develop the enzymes. Yeah, so I, I think that, right, that, that's a, a myth that can be debunked because there's a, definitely an argument in the anti-milk community that, you know, milk isn't that great because so much of the world's population can't consume it, but ultimately they could. They could re uh, in, uh, bring it back into their diet very slowly and they could start producing the enzyme because like all things in the human body, if we don't drink milk, our body stops producing the enzyme, essentially, correct? Isn't that what happens? Uh, uh, right. Uh, right. Uh, about 30 or 40 years ago, uh, the U.S. government uh, was giving uh, foreign aid, some of it in the form of powdered milk, uh, but uh, the people who wanted them to buy uh, waste from the fish industry, uh, powdered fish, for example, uh, promoted the, uh, uh, the the idea that 
giving powdered milk to famine areas uh, was was bad for the people. You should give them fish powder. Uh, but it, it was really a, a, a market influence pressure on the government that uh, helped to amplify the uh, I, I, the doctrine that uh, uh, most of the world is uh, lactose intolerant. Gotcha. So <clears throat> for people that later in life say, hey, I used to be able to tolerate milk, but now I can't tolerate milk. What would be some factors that may give somebody a lactose intolerance later in life? Well, uh, often it's something else about the milk. Uh, 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 a lot of people uh, just are, are determined to have uh, uh, raw organic milk. Uh, and uh, uh, there have been two big dairies that I, I've tried to drink the organic milk from. Uh, and the milk tasted bad. In one of the cases, uh, I looked on the map uh, and it was uh, uh, there's a, a factory on I-5, I think it was called Watang, that produced uh, a toxic metal uh, for the government military. Uh, oh. And uh, it, the odor permeates miles around it. And this dairy, organic dairy, was very close to the factory, downwind from it. Uh, and so their cows were constantly breathing that horrible stink and it showed up in the milk, even though technically it was organic. Uh, and uh, the milk was making me sick. Uh, uh, that happened with two or three uh, brands of organic milk. Uh, and uh, I simply found that, that the most common reason was that they uh, allowed their cows uh, to, to uh, uh, graze on weeds uh, rather than uh, known uh, uh, grass or clover. Uh, and many weeds are very bad tasting. Many of them are allergenic. Uh, uh, breastfeeding women often have the experience that if they eat certain foods, the baby becomes constipated uh, or uh, develops uh, uh, related symptoms uh, because the allergens go right into the milk. Uh, so if the cow grazes on allergenic weeds, uh, the, the milk is uh, allergenic. So uh, good tasting milk, whether it's organic or not, uh, is a good bet uh, that it is less allergenic. Uh, and also, uh, highly pasteurized milk uh, 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 kills some of the bacteria that people are sensitive to. Uh, so it's a matter of finding the milk that agrees with you. Uh, and uh, none of that has to do with lactose. Right. But, and well, I'm going to touch on that, but, uh, but can stress be a factor in producing the lactose enzyme so that that would affect someone? So what I certainly see is people under severe amount of stress don't well, tolerate yeah, uh, milk. Uh, uh, hypothyroidism and low progesterone uh, interfere with the production of lactase enzyme. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so could just improving thyroid function and getting out of stress improve someone's ability to tolerate milk? Uh, very often, that's all it takes. Yeah. 
Right. And then also then kind of going off what you just said, I, I think it's important to understand that um, you have to, it's important to find what milk works for you. And for some people it is a, a raw milk works best for them and they feel great on that. And then for others, it's ultra pasteurized or it could be pasteurized for other reasons. And that's maybe why they tolerate. So it's important to, to not just try one that if you're trying to bring milk back into your life to, to try a variety of different milks and to try to find one that works for you. Mm -hmm. um, getting on that. And, and I'm going to jump into the, another thought that people have is a casein um, allergy. Um, it, is this a true allergy or what else could it be if somebody feels they have a casein issue with, uh, with dairy? With, with the what issue? Casein, the other oh. protein besides the way people say they have a casein allergy. Uh, uh, yeah. Some of the uh, studies are, are based on a chemical breakdown uh, of uh, casein uh, and then even uh, chemically uh, hydrolyzing it, which is not the same as uh, detesting it in your stomach and intestine. Uh, they test uh, the toxicity of uh, the broken down casein, for example, by injecting it into a mouse brain. Uh, absolutely nothing to do with the way milk is used and digested. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of extreme uh, illogical propaganda attached to uh, uh, the idea that one kind of casein is better than another. Right. But I think that some people will consume something like cheese and think uh, because it doesn't have a lot of lactose because everyone's either lactose or casein and go, well, I don't do well on that. So I must have a casein issue or casein intolerance or casein allergy. And I mean, I, I, could it be maybe something else in that cheese that be oh, oh, yeah. uh, about, I guess it's been uh, more than 10 years ago, uh, I, there were several brands of American cheese uh, imitating traditional European brands. Uh, and uh, uh, the, I was eating a particular uh, good kind, of, I think it was from Vermont, and I noticed uh, suddenly uh, it had an unfamiliar soft, moist texture. Uh, and then uh, uh, after eating it for a few days, I started getting uh, bowel inflammation symptoms. Uh, and so I uh, checked uh, the labels and they had suddenly changed from uh, animal rennet to so-called vegetable rennet, uh, which means uh, uh, in most cases, a genetically engineered microbial uh, enzyme producers, uh, which always carry uh, allergens from the microbe. Uh, so I, I changed to another uh, American cheese uh, uh, that was traditional. Uh, uh, and in a short time, the texture of that became softer, moister, slightly different taste. And then I got sick. Uh, that happened with free American brands before I uh, uh, investigated in detail and found out uh, that uh, by that time, two-thirds of all cheese in the world uh, was no longer made with animal rennet, but with uh, these genetically modified uh, microorganisms producing uh, only uh, usually one single 
enzyme rather than the natural complex of enzymes occurring in rennet. Uh, so uh, the industry uh, of genetically engineered enzyme has almost completely taken over world cheese production. So you have to very carefully read the labels and interpret labels that they're using the language more and more slightly so that people will not dig too deeply and find the genetic modified organisms in their food. Are, are they allowed to put these, because I see them all the time, it's vegetable rennet, it seems to be prevalent in so much cheese. Can they put that in a organic cheese? In a what cheese? In, in an organic. So if it says organic cheese. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The, the, the cheese makers have pretty much damaged the idea of what really is organic. So that's allowed to put in a vegetable rennet that's been engineered? Uh, uh, yeah, th there is no rennet other than made by a, a cow's stomach or a calf's stomach. Right, but but some of these cheeses are putting in this vegetable rennet. So is that, I so guess, allowed? Uh, that, that's, that's a total dishonesty. There is no such thing as oh. uh, vegetable rennet. It's, oh. it's, it's like saying... Uh, 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 butter made from cottonseed oil. I see. So it's just their terminology, but it isn't really that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, or soy milk. Gotcha. milk. Well, we have soy milk as in anything. It's just, you know, man, uh, it removes the man from people. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but to use the word milk in uh, such a situation, uh, one of the worst foods gets the name of one of the best foods. Yes. Okay. So <clears throat> basically food manufacturers are using certain terminologies to make you think you're getting something. I think they use that because everybody's so plant-based right now. They think they, they're getting something better when in fact, they're absolutely not getting something. Um, okay. So what about people talk about the hormones in milk? They're like, I'm afraid of milk because it has all this estrogen or progesterone in it or whatever. Is this affecting people's health? Is it something to worry about? The amounts are barely measurable. Uh, they probably don't have any uh, effect. Uh, the uh, uh, progesterone will tend to concentrate in the butter. So uh, it's much larger than the presence of other hormones. But all of the animal's hormones will show up in the milk. Uh, and the progesterone is a major one, uh, especially concentrated in the butter. Uh, and it's beneficial, but the quantity is very, very low. And, and most of the hormones would be present in the fat, too. I guess that's why it's more prevalent in butter. So if somebody consumed a lower fat milk, the, the hormones would be greatly decreased, correct? Uh, yeah. Okay. So if someone has an issue, I, I've had people say that literally they've, they've been had cancer and so they, they won't drink milk. And I, I find that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think it's the premise that they think that the hormones are going to affect them. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, one of the tricks of the anti-milk cult cultists. 
Yes, they are out in full force these days. Um, what about people who drink milk and they say milk is giving me acne? What would you say is going on there? Milk does what? Gives them acne. They start to get acne oh. on their skin. The skin is hey, hey, yeah. Maybe they're drinking too much fat with it. Uh, uh, any kind of fat in excess uh, will uh, disturb your skin energy production. Uh, and uh, uh, for uh, any cell, uh, its functions decrease uh, uh, under the influence of fat rather than sugar. So if someone thinks that they're drinking milk and they're getting acne, then maybe consuming a lower fat milk would be to their benefit. I think so. Okay. Okay. And <clears throat> what about milks linked to increasing insulin growth factor? So that's a conversation as well. They think it is having an effect on this growth factor. Um, what would you comment on that? I've, it has benefits as well as, risks, uh, but uh, the idea that it becomes a danger of accelerated aging and cancer and so on, uh, I don't think there's uh, valid evidence uh, that uh, those changes are, are harmful. Okay. So it's, so you just see some studies that say that, you know, milk is going to increase the insulin growth factor, and that's going to have a negative effect on certain aspects of people's health. And essentially, you're just saying at this point, we don't have enough evidence that it's going to do anything long term. Uh, uh, yeah, you can, uh, like with vitamin E, uh, the, uh, there were lots of publications over the years showing immense benefits from vitamin E. Uh, but when, when uh, the industry had something else they wanted to sell, they decided to emphasize that vitamin E could be a risk. And so they took the very papers that had been published showing changes, implying that those changes were in the direction of benefit. But anytime they had a publication that says vitamin E changes something, they said, uh, see, see it, it, it introduced a change uh, uh, that means vitamin E is harmful. Uh, everything you do uh, causes uh, uh, almost an infinite number of changes. Uh, and you have to evaluate whether the weight of the changes in one direction uh, are more effective than weight in the other direction. Uh, you can't uh, argue anything from one or two factors. Uh, that's a, a propaganda tool uh, used all the way, anything physiological or biochemical, uh, where you have a million influences. Uh, they uh, find two or three that could be harmful uh, and say, uh, therefore, uh, you shouldn't do something because it causes those changes but they're ignoring the almost a million other events that could be all beneficial. Ah, well, that sounds like what they did with the estrogen therapy. 
because they found some things that they liked and then they focused on those and forgot all the other things it was doing negatively. Exactly. That's why you have hundreds of thousands of estrogen papers, uh, almost all of them saying how wonderful estrogen is. So you have to read each one carefully uh, and uh, consider the the relatively few uh, publications that uh, show contrary effects, harmful effects. Uh, And uh, uh, it always turns out that they've carefully selected things that could be beneficial from estrogen, uh, not things that are known to be beneficial. Mm. And I think this is just a good understanding of why having a big picture look at the metabolism and how everything works and, and looking at everything, not just singularly maybe a single nutrient or, or a single hormone, because if you just single focus, you, I tend to miss the big picture about how it all works together. And I think I, that's why. I, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and in fact, that's the essence of science beginning in the 20th century, such a narrow focus, uh, mechanistic determinism, uh, whether it's in atomic physics uh, or genetics uh, and physiology, if you narrow your attention, you can always become blind to the surrounding benefits, pick out only what you want. Right. Uh, That's that's simply the nature of uh, reductive uh, thinking. Yeah. Well, it seems to, you know, they use it in a lot of different ways in today's world (laughs) when they just want to push an agenda, they can just focus on one or two things and, and forget all the other things. Um, it seems to be a popular way to approach uh, science or whatever that you want to call it these days. Um, okay, we got a few more questions about milk just to kind of round it up. Um, and, and, and this is, I, I just probably said, what type of milk is best? And I think you answered it probably by the one that works best for you. Um, and how important the quality of the animals are being treated and what they're eating. And that is a pretty important part. So in your view, is it that important if the, if the milk is raw or pasteurized or ultra pasteurized, or even if it has additives in it, it's just basically finding which one works for the individual, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So even if a milk has certain additive, because obviously in most um, areas, there's nutrients added to milk that are low fat, but as long as someone can tolerate those and, and seems to do okay, then that is okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, now what other sources, if someone doesn't tolerate milk, where else can they get their calcium sources from? Uh, uh, cooked greens uh, have a very high ratio of calcium to phosphorus uh, and uh, the, the ratio is of major importance uh, uh, because too much phosphate uh, uh, t- turns on uh, the parathyroid hormone, turns off uh, useful energy production, uh, uh, and so on. So uh, the excitatory effect of uh, inorganic phosphate uh, uh, is a, a real danger, uh, and that has to be balanced by the calcium. So. Uh, cooked greens are a very safe source if you can digest them. Okay. And can you just 
explain maybe some of the foods that are high in phosphorus so people can understand, you know, why maybe some diets out there aren't um, beneficial because they might be high in that nutrient? Uh, uh, yeah, the meat and fish. Okay. And, uh, they, because they have a very low calcium content if the animal is healthy. Their, their soft tissues uh, uh, exclude calcium. So uh, the phosphate uh, in the ATP, for example, uh, gives them a very high ratio of phosphate to calcium. Uh, nuts, grains, legumes, uh, uh, in general, uh, the, the uh, reproductive tissues uh, are, uh, the phosphate is present uh, so that the storage material uh, can be turned into growth material. Uh, so when something has a, a great potential for growth, uh, that means it has to have a stored uh, phosphate in excess. Uh, and that makes uh, beans, nuts, and grains uh, among the, the worst foods for calcium. Okay, so essentially a, a diet that's high in dairy, dairy, dairy or, and or cooked greens, um, and then balancing that with uh, the meat and maybe minimizing the grains and the beans and the nuts would, mm -hmm. would be advantageous. Yeah. What about, just because I'm obsessed with this lately, um, masa harina, is that a decent source of calcium? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, because they add, they uh, boil it in uh, calcium hydroxide uh, and uh, it's cheap for uh, overnight. Uh, so it soaks up a lot of calcium. Uh, my dentist in Mexico uh, says in her area where uh, people eat no bread but uh, lots of tortillas, uh, even people in their 80s who uh, insist they want a toothful. She says sometimes it takes her uh, all afternoon to get a molar out because their, their jaws and, and uh, teeth are so well-constructed from a, a chronically good ratio of uh, calcium to phosphate. So the masa harina doesn't have a lot of phosphate in it? Right? Uh, not compared to the, uh, the calcium. Okay, so everybody get some masa harina, make some your own tortillas. It's very, very good for you. Um, I can't think of anything else, Kitty. I don't know, you've been sitting there. Is there any other questions you'd like to ask, Ray? I don't think so. I've just been listening intently, learning so much. It's amazing. This is a really good um, episode and it was really clear, the sound this time. Yeah. Well, Ray, yeah. I, Ray, thank you. So, I mean, this cleared up a lot. I actually feel like it pulled a lot of things together and some deep understandings about the estrogen therapy and, and, and also just about calcium and calcium metabolism and, and, and important uh, aspects of sugar and carbon dioxide in that. I think those are very key points that I certainly got from this. Mm. Um, did you have anything else to share, Ray? Uh, uh, did I mention uh, uh, Steve Kirsch's uh, website? Uh, he's an MIT graduate uh, who uh, has uh, been exposing uh, science, science fraud uh, exposing the absolute disregard for science from uh, the great institutions like uh, Massachusetts 
Institute of Technology, uh, 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 absolutely not caring uh, to discuss the scientific issues. Uh, his website, uh, just on the issue of the disappearance of science from our culture, it's very important for everyone to think about. His last name is spelled K-I-R-S-C-H. Yes, and he looks like he has a substack. I'm just Googling him right now. So, uh, yeah, you, you kind of touched on him when we were, we were discussing the estrogen therapy um, and how science has changed so much and, and what they're doing with these days and why we're just getting all this, um, I guess, fake news because of, of how they're deciding on what is real and what is not. So that's what Steve Kirsch, K-I-R-S-C-H, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's worth looking into if anybody is interested in, in going down that rabbit hole. Um, but I, I'm good. Um, Ray, do you want to just mention your newsletter real quick? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, it's now going to be quarterly uh, rather than bimonthly. Uh, and uh, overall, the price is uh, roughly the same. Uh, and you can get information uh, at Ray Pete's newsletter at gmail.com. Yes. I'll pop and that I... in the show notes too. I'll pop that email. Yeah, and yeah. I highly. So, does that mean you're, you're they're going to get the same number, Ray, or they're just going to get? Are they still only going to get two years worth? Uh, yeah, the subscription is still for twelve issues, which okay. means three years instead of two years because they'll be only uh, four per year. I have no idea how you keep up with all that, but <laughs> God know, bless man. you. <laughs> I go when people's things expire after three years. Um, amazing. But it, it is amazing. Well, thank you again, both Kitty thank you and so Ray. Much. Thanks so much, Ray. Thanks, Kate. And uh, I know Kate's got a, we'll have you on again, Ray. I know Kate's got a few other topics that she wants to dive into. Okay, very good. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yep. Thank you. thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pete. Always a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Bye.